Hey, it's Maria Hinojosa, host of NPR's Latino USA, the podcast that takes you inside the Latino conversation. Each week, we'll take you into one story that will fascinate and often surprise you. Listen to Latino USA on the NPR One app or wherever you listen to podcasts. Ulrich Ulgen moved to the U.S. from Turkey when he was a kid. It was a pretty rough adjustment. I went from being the most popular kid in class to being the loser foreign kid who couldn't speak a lick of English. So it was quite a bit of a jump for me. It was a big, big transition. Ulgen felt like he never quite fit in. And over time, that disconnect took its toll. For a very, very long time, ever since I moved to the United States at the age of nine, I suffered a great deal of social anxiety. And in his early 20s, Ulgen had a breakdown, which he attributes to the challenges of assimilating. To heal himself, Ulgen returned to his homeland. I kind of just dropped everything on a whim and and flew as far away as I could get to, which happened to be a little town called Van in Turkey that was on the border of Iraq. And I just went hitchhiking. On that hitchhiking trip across Turkey, Ulgen found a missing part of himself. The people, the strangers that I met along the way that went out of their own way to help me out, to provide me shelter and to feed me, moved me so greatly that when I returned back to New York City, I wanted to pursue this hospitality and uh, and bring it back to America. And he did, through a podcast called Murmur. I post flyers all around New York City, essentially inviting any random person off the street, whether you're a doctor, lawyer, a homeless person, it doesn't matter. Come over to my house for a random conversation. That's what I'm about. I'm Lauren Ober, and this is The Big Listen from WAMU and NPR. Each week on The Big Listen, we invite you to open your ears to some of the great conversations happening in the wide world of podcasts today. Maybe, just maybe, we help you find some new things to listen to. During his soul-searching trip to Turkey, Ulrich Ulgen listened to a lot of comedian Mark Maron's interview podcast, WTF. You know, the connections that he was able to weave with his guests was something that I really, really admired. And every time I listened to one of his podcasts, I truly felt like I was in the same room together with those two people having that banter. And I wanted nothing more in my life to have the same thing. So when he returned to the U.S. from his trip to Turkey, Ulgen began planning his own podcast. He found an apartment in New York's East Village that made the perfect makeshift recording studio. And he sold a bunch of his belongings to pay for it. Then he posted flyers around the neighborhood, inviting strangers over to chit-chat. Here's Olgan reading from that first flyer he made. How are you? No, really. How are you? I'd love to know. I host an internet-based radio show that centers on the lives of everyday people. No agendas, no scripts, just natural and in-the-moment conversations. I don't know about you, but there is no way I am going over to a stranger's apartment in New York City to have a chat after seeing a flyer posted on a utility pole. But then some people are more trusting than me and don't have stranger danger. And folks did actually respond. And pretty soon, Ulgen had strangers in his apartment all the time gabbing about their lives. And he recorded the freewheeling conversations for his podcast. I've had a little over 250 strangers in my apartment. Which is nuts, especially in a city like New York, which is not exactly a warm and cuddly place. Here's Ulgen on his podcast talking to lawyer-turned-mystic Carol Parker. So, um... I gave you my birth date, and you're about to tell me the story of my life. No, I just made some observations because, like I said, you have the five two, one nine eight nine. So the five is 
communication. So you probably communicated very easily from early on. Ulgen's not interested in interviewing people, he says, but rather having honest conversations with folks he knows nothing about and occasionally getting an astrological reading. We don't know what we're going to talk about. We don't know what subject matters that we're going to get into, but that's the fun. That's the fun and the spirit of the project is to say, you know what? Let's connect on the fact that we're both human. Murmur's been around for three years, and in that time, Ulgen's been pretty successful carrying out his mission until his landlord got involved. He issued Ulgen an ultimatum. Stop recording the podcast in the building or move out. We'll hear from Ulgen in a bit about his campaign to save the podcast. But now we're going to explore another kind of stranger connection. This one through poetry. Now, I'm guessing that if you've ever had a poem written for you, it was penned by some puppy-eyed suitor extolling the virtues of your love or other things. But it probably was not written by a stranger. On the podcast Versify, a stranger is exactly who's writing the poetry. It's a show that pairs a storyteller with a poet to create an original poem inspired by the storyteller's tale. What do you see when you look fear in the face? How do you navigate life when your compass has been on mute since exiting the womb and your shoulders are bruised from bumping into people and blindly breaking the rules? That's Serene Thompson, our poet for today. He's sitting down with Mr. Fred Bailey, who shares the tale of how a surprising diagnosis turned him from your run-of-the-mill country kid into a real-life civic superhero. And we're going to find out. How- that sultry voice is the host of Versify, Nashville poet Joshua Moore. He produces the show with Tony Gonzalez. Joshua and Tony, welcome to the Big Listen. Yeah, thank you for having us. Hey, how are you? Are there are there parameters that the the poets have to follow, or do you just say, you know, you can you can make this as literal as you want, or or make it much more abstract or figurative? Yeah, we leave it completely up to the poets, honestly. Um, and we work with poets who are from all different disciplines. Ones who are more academic, more like page poets. We have a number of spoken word artists. So it's really at their discretion to, you know, create whatever they find in that person's story. Mm-hmm. I mean, we, we definitely have some poems that end up sounding like like a story, right? I mean, that's that's very narrative that pretty closely holds to what the storyteller said. We've also had some where there's like some great little liberties that the poet takes. Um, maybe they're blending in their own personal experience. The thing is, we also we then sort of elicit from the poet and the storyteller once they've heard the poem to talk about it. Now, full disclosure, this isn't the first time Bob has seen the poem. It's been a while since he and Destiny first spoke, so she went ahead and sent Bob a digital copy. And Destiny also told Bob that she took a bit of artistic license in the poem, specifically in the description of Spike and the speaker's reflection on his past marriage. Well, I loved it. I mean, uh, she kind of... uh, I don't know, almost apologize for taking liberties, but that, that's kind of like what I like about it. If it's if it's just exactly what I said, it's just a book report that rhymes, you know. <laughs> if it had only been my story. It's like a book report that rhymes. <laughs> and, that, and that wouldn't be good enough. So uh, he was really glad that there was sort of some license taken and that it really went somewhere more artistic. Right. Um, so... Yeah, I mean, we leave it pretty wide open. I would mention that we we do a training session with all the mm. poets when they first uh, sort of get involved with the project. And that's really more about, um, it's, it's not about how to write poems other than, 
hey, you're going to have a time limit. And in fact, maybe we should talk about the time limit for a second. Yeah. Tony's right that the the structural part that we bring to it or that we ask the poets to abide by is more in the interview portion and like how long they have to craft the thing. Mm. So we give them an hour, usually an hour and a half tops. Um, and basically whatever they have, we ask them to like bring and present back to the person. We don't want them just to like get an email yeah. or something later on and uh, read the poem. We want them to um, get a chance to really interact with the poet and ask questions or respond to it. So the time limit is really purposeful. Right. I think somebody mentioned um, the idea of letting somebody else's story sort of consume you or control you or that you're embodying these other stories and that, you know, mm. it seems like a real privilege, but also quite a challenge. Yeah, it's definitely something that you're like really cognizant of when you're coming to somebody else's story that one, you want to do it justice, um, but that also like you don't want to miss any little bit, anything that's important that you think might figure out, mm -hmm. figure into the poem or that's significant to your storyteller. Um, and in a lot of ways, by like spending that time, inevitably by like stepping into their shoes, you, bits of yourself start to slide out into the poem. Mm -hmm. A number of our, our poets talk about like when they take creative liberties, they're like, well, you know, this is a bit of, you know, a little bit of my life that I ended up putting into the poem. Mm. But we honestly think that's like what enhances the experience is like really working to empathize with someone. Right. Or seeing your story reflected through somebody else. I mean, isn't that always what we're doing? I mean, once I put my story out into the world, I have no control how you're going to interact with it. Yeah. And, you know, we actually um, we hear like very directly from the storytellers, um, partly because we ask them, but it also usually just sort of comes out. Um, they'll say, like, it, it was so interesting to have someone, like, listen to me yeah. and pay attention to me. Or I actually, you know, I've shared this story before. Or, you know, I talk about this occasionally. But this time, like, I actually added some other details. Or mm. the poet asked me this question, so I went ahead and kind of, like, went a little further. Or I didn't have any – I think, that, you know, if, you, if you're telling a story to, like, your best friend or to a family member and maybe you know all the players involved, you might have to kind of – tread lightly or be a little careful about mm -hmm. how you characterize things. But if you're talking to a stranger, uh, maybe you just kind of put it out there a little bit. Mm -hmm. So I think we we hear directly from our storytellers that they feel oddly comfortable talking to a stranger uh -huh. uh, who they've never met uh, and that they just love being uh, being heard. Yeah. You know, people listening closely to what they're saying. Yeah. I have to say that as a listener, it was emotional um, hearing somebody's own story rendered in verse. I mean, I, you know, in full disclosure, I cried a few times. Um, I mean, one in particular was the, um, the woman who fled the Rwandan genocide. Good evening. I had the great honor today of speaking with a woman named Ibrahim Wiserwa. Um, who spoke about her life in Rwanda during the Rwandan genocide. And I'd heard some things about her experience. What I did not know is that at the time of the genocide, she was pregnant. In the audience, sitting near the front, Abrali is with one of her legacy mission co-workers. They both hold up their smartphones, rolling video of destiny. And so um, here's what I have, and it's called Why We Will Never Forget April 1994. I could smell the rain before I heard it, pounding the roof in double time like militiamen or like the baby kicking my stomach, empty as a soccer ball. I dreamed of fields 
green during times of peace, of children racing toward goalposts, now stacked with bodies. I would bid my oldest to cover their eyes whenever we passed them, but today we were trapped indoors. So much water. I thought the sky would collapse and the world would end like it should have. What do you think it means for these storytellers then to have these intimate, a lot of times intimate stories, um, you know, reflected back to them in the in the form of a poem? Well, I think um, certainly we hope that it's affirming for them to like, you know, I feel like so often in like your just day to day, maybe you're you don't feel as paid attention to or engaged with as deeply um, as you hope. And like, we really want them to feel like their that their life experiences are worth people's consideration and attention and um, that they can have these intimate exchanges and really get something from it, something that pays dividends. Mm. Yeah. The other thing I wanted to mention is, you know, when, when people come up to us, maybe they see the microphones or they see our banner or, or whatever it is. Mm. A lot of people like the first thing out of their mouth is, oh, I don't have a story or, <laughs> or I don't have anything interesting to share. Yeah. And we're, I don't want to say that we're defiant, but we're sort of like, well, you know, why don't you just say, you know, answer this one question or, well, hey, today we're talking about neighborhoods or today we're talking about the the impact of music on our lives or, mm-hmm. or whatever it may be. And then people right away are like, oh. Well, yeah, this uh, one CD, I listened to it 25 times after I broke up with this guy. And let yeah. me tell you all about the lyrics that matter right. to me or whatever it is. <laughs> that That is a real example from Bonnaroo. But. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think one thing that we always kind of hoped, but that I've kind of seen reflected back in a few of our storytellers recently, is that like the poem being this gift, this kind of lifelong gift. And a few of them in the reflection have been like, you know, I was so excited to participate because like, a poem, that's a lifelong thing. Like, it's this indelible thing that you can hold on to yeah. and pass on. And I feel like um, one of the aims of our project, which we're trying to do more and more wherever we set, like, set up our storytelling events, is to, like, engage with parts of Nashville that honestly are changing pretty quickly and w- communities where, you know, your story doesn't feel important because no one's paying attention to you or because the next big thing is coming up mm-hmm. um, on the block. And, mm-hmm. like, those are the stories that we want to honor and that those are the people we want to reach out to and say, like, you know, you have something to say and we're here to listen to you. Joshua Moore and Tony Gonzalez are the host and producer, respectively, of Versify from our pals at Nashville Public Radio. To find out more about their show, check out biglisten.org. If you remember our pal Ulich Ulgin from the top of the show, he's the guy inviting strangers into his home to appear on his podcast, Murmur. And recently, Ulgin's landlord caught wind of the podcast. Even though Murmur is not a business, even though I'm not making any money off of Murmur, he notified me that I have to stop the operations and that if I should continue living in this building, I have to eliminate all microphones, cables, and speakers from my apartment. And if that wasn't enough... He also said that from this point on, I'll be subjected to monthly surprise inspections to ensure that I don't have any of these things in my unit. And if he finds out, I will be evicted and sued. The landlord told Ulgen that the podcast was a liability. He didn't much care for strangers in the building. But Ulgen questions how his podcast is any different than, say, online dating. You might get a match on Tinder, you go out for drinks, and then a few hours later, that person, a near-complete stranger, is back at your apartment admiring your collection of beer steins or paperweights. So is my landlord going to 
inspect me for all the dates that I'm gonna bring into my apartment or all the dates that the other people in the building are gonna bring, in, bring into their own units? I mean, if so, it's gonna be pretty exhausting for the landlord. But you know, everyone's got their thing. We're going to take a little break now, but when we come back, we'll talk with comedian Chris Gethard about what he's learned from talking to strangers on his own podcast, Beautiful Stories from Anonymous People. Sometimes just shutting up is a skill in its own right. Realizing that someone's saying something and they're stumbling into something, and if you can just stay out of the way, that might be the most interesting content. But first, we'll talk with renowned psychotherapist Esther Perel about how she helps couples navigate the rocky shoals of a relationship. No relationship system, no living organism in nature, in human life, or in companies can survive without change. Mm -hmm. If you do not grow, if you do not evolve, you fossilize and you die. That's coming up in just a sec. Stick with us. This is NPR. Hi, this is Taryn from Richmond, Virginia, and I just want to shout out the Black Joy mixtape by Amber Phillips and Jasmine Walker. It's dope because they are just super cozy and funny and thoughtful about politics and news and all types of other um, things. Over 50% of guns are owned by 20, 21% of the population. And gun control, like when we're talking about gun reform, you know, people aren't necessarily talking about what happens with all these people with guns, specifically these white extremists who right. exist in this country who are um, just being... Um, violent, like off the bases or in, and or fear of melanated people in this country. Right. There's no way. There Check it out. And yeah, have a good one. Hey, pals. Welcome back to The Big Listen. I'm Lauren Ober. And if you are also a fan of any super cozy shows like the Black Joy Mixtape, ring up the pod line and tell us about them. It's almost always a good day for some cozy. If you've ever tried to save a long-term relationship before, you might have come across this name, Esther Perel. She's the Belgian psychotherapist whose TED Talks on love, intimacy, and infidelity have garnered millions of views online. We have a romantic ideal in which we turn to one person to fulfill an endless list of needs, to be my greatest lover, my best friend, the best parent, my trusted confidant, my emotional companion, my intellectual equal. And I am it. I'm chosen. I'm unique. I'm indispensable. I'm irreplaceable. I'm the one. And infidelity tells me I'm not. Over the years, Perel has worked with tons of couples to figure out how they can fix relationships broken by infidelity, ambivalence, or neglect. And recently, she allowed some microphones into her office to capture therapy sessions with real couples. But don't worry, they all consented. The result is a totally unique show called Where Should We Begin? Esther Perel, welcome to The Big Listen. My pleasure. Um, I feel like after listening to your show, someone needs to make flashcards with all of the things that you say. Like, do you want to hear or do you want to be right? Um, sex and art. Death and mortality live in the shadow of infidelity. 
affairs are our attempts to recapture lost parts of ourselves. And I feel like you could put all of those on cards and people could just carry them around with them as sort of daily affirmations. I'm just considering maybe it's a business idea for you. <laughs> <laughs> Will you do the design with me? No. <laughs> No, I want. I can't. I can't do any of that. No, it's very beautiful, actually. To, to, to me, if you quote me like this, it means that you are listening, mm -hmm. and then it also means that I am able to convey something succinctly and clearly. And both of those are important. Right. I feel like one big part of, or one thing that keeps coming up is listening and. Uh, are you actually hearing what the person is saying or are you using your own filter and this is what you think they say? I mean, is that a thread you see throughout the, the couples you work with? Let me set it up for you a little differently because, you know, here is a podcast in which I open the door to a psychotherapy office. Nobody has ever sat in on a therapy of another couple, but in a broader sense, most often we don't know what really goes on in the backstage of a couple. Couples are often quite isolated and they ask themselves, is this natural? Is this normal? Do other people go through this? Am I alone? And here is this unit that is today living with more expectations than any other relationship unit ever has. Relationship expectations for coupledom are at an all-time high. And yet... Um, they are not necessarily coming with the most fine-tuned ear. They come with the deep need to be heard, but they don't necessarily come with the deep wish to listen to the other. So there's a part of him that wants to try to tell you, I also felt something. Betrayal comes in many forms. He didn't feel betrayed, he felt abandoned. And you are basically saying, grow up. Right. And okay. it's not true. Hmm? And I don't think it's true. I don't right. think he got abandoned. You want to hear or you want to be yeah. right? I want to hear. Then you're going to have to maybe not be so right. <laughs> How much of that is just ego? Hmm. I would say uh, an ego makes a relationship, but a relationship also creates a, the person. Mm -hmm. We, it's an inter. This, it's a, it's interactive. It's interrelated. The you make the relationship, but the relationship makes you, and that is a fundamental thing to understand about couples. Is that couples think that one person is a certain way and the other person is a different way, when in fact we are not at all the same person in all our relationships, but we become a certain person in a particular relationship because of the dynamic that we have with that person. So in this relationship, I may be the talker, but in the previous one, I was the listener. In this relationship, I'm the one who's often wanting to move out or move on or move faster or move deeper. In the previous one, I was on the other side. And that has to do with who's in front of me. Mm -hmm. So the big secret of couples is that we actually make the other. By virtue of how I am, I could contribute in who you will become mm -hmm. with me. Mm-hmm. It, it it makes me think of um, one of the couples you talked with where the man had started to adopt sort of an alter ego, Jean-Claude. I thought that was so interesting, this sort of role-playing dynamic. Um, do you do that a lot with folks? I do a lot of role-playing, not, ex not like I did in this session. This session was unique for myself as well. But what it says is this. We often become only a version of ourselves in a relationship. 
and that we often lose touch with the other versions of ourselves. When you pick a partner, you pick a story. And that story becomes the one that describes you, but also shapes you. It's both end. And here is this couple, and they are so stuck. And they have been together for quite a few years, more than a decade by far. They are repeating the same thing all over. They both have histories of trauma and sexual abuse, amongst other things. And I am afraid, as I read their intake, that they're going to come in and tell me one more time the same story. And the only thing I'm thinking in my head is, how do I do this so that they don't go and tell me the whole thing yet again, for which they've, you know, I'm not going to be able to do much on that. They need a new perspective. They need to experience themselves differently. And that is what role play offers you. It offers you the ability to enter into another version of yourself, to enact it, to feel it, to see what comes back from you. And it is amazing what happens in that session, because just when he becomes that alter ego, which we didn't even know he had, and neither did she. Where he's speaking French. Where he's speaking French, poorly, but speaks <laughs> French. And and I translate, and I'm thinking, you know, she says, I don't understand. And I say, that's actually going to help you. The fact that you don't understand may make you listen differently because you're going to listen not just with your ears, but with your eyes, with your touch. You know, you're going to use your other senses. And actually, when he touches her, when he holds her hands from the place of this other person, she has a completely different experience of him. You cannot say this. You have to experience it, but it it is so clear at that moment. And I could not describe it for the life of me. But once they enacted it, it was right there. So what you want is to help each other stay. Stay with these other parts of you that are, they're there. They just don't, <laughs> they have not been given much permission. So... Don't make a long speech. Just basically say, I'm having unwanted guests. Mm -hmm. Or something very short that just cues, help me stay. Help me be in the present. Go put some lipstick. If you start to, to wander away and I, I feel you, I can call you back. I would like that. And you can call me out. I you can call me out of, out, of the, Scott. out of the forest. So when the wires get crossed, you'd simply tell him, speak to me in French. Speak to me in French. Um, you're married? 35 years. <laughs> <laughs> do you, um, do, do, I do think, I use my lessons? Well, I, I wasn't necessarily going to ask that. I was, I was going to say, um, do you use them on your spouse? Yes. Yeah. Yes. I would hope that uh, I've collected <laughs> my own best tips, you know, <laughs> or my best behavior um, over time. Yes. Yeah. But um, I don't think that there's a single couple that is together for many years that would say we haven't gone through our own formative experiences, yeah. our lessons, our challenges, um, you know. The, and and the way I like to say it often, because it's a sentence that has actually really helped a lot of the couples that I see who are dealing with the crisis of an affair, is that today in the West, 
many of us, most of us, are going to have two or three relationships in our adult life. Mm-hmm. Marriages, committed relationships. Some of us are going to do it with the same person. And so my, the only thing where my husband and I maybe don't always agree is how many marriages have we had together? <laughs> how many do you say you've had? I say three, he says four. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I kind of love that because then you're allowing yourselves license to be different people and to change and evolve and allow your rela- relationship to change and evolve and be something totally new and different. It seems um, unrealistic that we would expect anybody to be the same from, you know, when you meet in your mid-20s to, you know, when you're grandparents or something. No relationship system. No living organism in nature, in human life, or in companies can survive without change. Mm -hmm. If you do not grow, if you do not evolve, you fossilize and you die. Mm -hmm. If you grow too fast and all the time and you deal with one change after another, you go in chaos, you dysregulate, and you also are off track. Mm -hmm. But there is no relationship system that can continue to be alive, to thrive, to be engaging, to be vital, vibrant, uh, that doesn't change. That is very strange that people understand that for every other system. There's no, nobody would ever think of that for a business. Nobody would think of that for a school. But when it comes to romantic love, because I found you, that one and only, there is this notion that from there, it just should kind of, you know, flow. Mm-hmm. Um, and everybody knows that that's not how a relationship works. It's active engagement. It's work. It's, uh, but it's the creative work. It's taking risks. It's deepening. It's dealing with your darker sides. It's, uh, it's challenging your own levels of acceptance of the other and of yourself. It's all of that. It's mm-hmm. a very vital system, actually, mm-hmm. when you allow it to breathe. Esther Perel is the author of the new book, The State of Affairs, Rethinking Infidelity, and the host of the show, Where Should We Begin? from Audible. To find out more about her work, check out biglisten.org. Well, it's time for another quick break, but when we come back, we'll catch up with comedian Chris Gethard about how his podcast, Beautiful Stories from Anonymous People, has been good for his soul. It actually makes me feel really thankful that I have the podcast because it's like an hour a week where I, uh, I get to connect with someone. That's right after the break. Stay put. This is NPR. It's Lulu Miller, and I am back with a new story for Invisibilia. It is about the pleasures. It's just electric. And the dangers. There's just nothing more scary. Of trying to live between two worlds. You can find Invisibilia on NPR One or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Mary from Greenville, South Carolina. I'm here to recommend Ben Franklin's World. I think it's a great podcast about early American history. Liz Covart makes everything very understandable and relatable to today's world. The Catawba's position in the Carolina Piedmont, which stretched through the center of North Carolina down through the core of South Carolina, made neutrality an impossibility during the Revolutionary War. The war raged right through the heart of Catawba towns and lands, which meant the Catawba had to pick a side in order to defend their families. But just because they had to choose a side didn't mean they had to choose the revolutionary side. As Brooke revealed, 
it's impossible for us to know exactly why the Kataba chose to fight alongside the revolutionaries. It's fascinating, and if you're a history buff, you gotta check it out. Thank you. Hey, pals, welcome back to The Big Listen. I'm Lauren Ober, and if you're like our friend Mary from Greenville, South Carolina, and you're also nerding out on a podcast, we'd love to hear about it. Ring up the old pod line at 202-885-POD1, and then we'll put you on the radio. What fun! When comedian Chris Gethard was a drunk, depressed college student, there's no way he could have anticipated how his career would unfold. He couldn't have guessed that just a decade and a half later, he'd have his own acclaimed HBO special and a cable TV show where he gets to hang out with all his delightfully weird friends. Good evening, weirdos! Welcome to the Chris Gethard Show with sidekick Shannon O'Neill, internet liaison Bethany Hall, the creature from the sea, the human fish. But Gethard's rising star has meant that it's hard for him to be just an anonymous guy anymore, except on his podcast, Beautiful Stories from Anonymous People. On each episode, Gethard talks to a random listener over the phone, and he can't hang up first. Thank you for calling Beautiful Anonymous. A beeping noise will indicate when you are on the show with the host. Hello? Hi. Yo! Yo. Hey. Yo. What's up? What's up? What? (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) What's up? Uh, I don't know. I don't know. I'm hanging at my parents' house with their dogs, but now I'm outside my parents' house. So I'm not. I lied to you. Chris Gathered, host of Beautiful Stories from Anonymous People, also known as Beautiful Anonymous. Welcome to The Big Listen. Thanks so much for having me. Okay, so you clearly are not this person, but I am kind of a person who maybe avoids conversation with strangers, and you are leaning into them. And I feel like I'm not too different than most people where, you know, where we we keep our head down and we put our headphones in and we sort of (laughs) like avoid eye contact and try not to talk. But why are you, why are you the opposite? Well, it's funny. It's in my work. I'm definitely the opposite. I think in my real life, I've actually, I'm as closed up as anybody, maybe more so lately. Like, Mm -hmm. uh, I would, I would actually say that I think the podcast is in in many ways kind of a reaction to that, to the fact that I think we're all headed in that direction, myself included. Um, I know, I know uh, for me, like, especially, especially as I've been doing, you know, like I did my HBO special and my TV show. Now people are starting to approach me more like strangers and that's Mm -hmm. making me more closed off. And it actually makes me feel really thankful that I have the podcast because it's like an hour a week where I, uh, I get to connect with someone in a genuine way. I feel like your show is like this exercise in long form listening, which I think can be tough in sort of the best of circumstances. Do you have to get into a headspace and say, okay, now I am, I am listening now. That is my, my job. Because I think in your TV show, you have to be on, you're, you know, it is, it is sitting on your shoulders. um, And here, you know, the job is really to, to listen, right? Yeah. And it, it took me a lot in the early days um, to embrace that and realize that that is a skill. You know, as someone who's trained in comedy, you're always going for the throat trying to find the laugh, and that's the mm-hmm. skills you learn. This podcast has taught me sometimes just shutting up is a skill in its own right, realizing mm-hmm. that someone's saying something and they're stumbling into something, and if you can just stay out of the way, that might be the most interesting content. That that was a lot of restraint that I had to learn, and figuring out that sometimes the best way to demonstrate that was just hang back and listen harder. When you are listening, 
when the call ends and you 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 know you hang up with the person, what what feeling do you have? What do you get out of it when you're finished? There are times where people share stuff that's very personal and oftentimes very dark, and I I I cannot lie. There are times where it sticks with me and haunts me a little bit, and I wind mm-hmm. up having to talk to my wife about that or having to really shake it off. There's a few that stand out. There was one a. Uh, a lady who actually called from a hospital waiting room because they were waiting on her daughter's yeah. test results for some cancer screening, and that one rattled me. The very first week we were in the hospital, this is little eight-year-old, she had this big list on the whiteboard of all the things that she had to go through that week because when they first get diagnosed, they have to get all kinds of tests done um, to them. So she had this big list, and, and she also, on the whiteboard, there were um, people had written notes, we love Holly, and you know, get better, just little cute notes on it. And then she wrote totally at a time. I didn't even know. I don't even know when she did it, but I looked over at one point and then she'd written love is everywhere on the board. And that's just become our mantra and helped us. Every, I mean, she, she writes it everywhere and people, it's just our, our in fact, our, her elementary school made a big on the, along the fence, tied these pink ribbons and says love is everywhere. So it's, it's really amazing the community support and, and love. So wow. it's not all bad. <laughs> I, I'm going to call it hard, but I, not all bad. I'm going to say been doing this show for well over a year. I haven't cried yet. And uh, this one's going to get me. I can feel it already. I can feel it already. A woman who escaped from a cult at one point in her life, who told me a lot mm-hmm. about that. And in the course of talking to her, my, my reaction I think was similar to what I saw a lot of the online feedback was, which was that, she she seems to maybe think she's more over this than she is, and you can right. kind of feel that through the phone. That was really, uh, you know, really pretty terrifying because there are some where you just want to, you know, one of I think one of the cool uh, probably if the podcast has any hook, it's that we hang up the phone and we never know. Yeah, and a lot of times that's kind of in a narrative sense such a cool thing to just have this like lingering open-ended thing and then there's some where I just immediately hang up and go oh no oh no I don't I'll never know if that person was okay you know I've talked to I've talked to heroin addicts I've talked to a woman who found out her husband was uh, hoarding kitty porn I don't know it's hard because I have a natural inclination to be like forgiving of people and accepting of people and it's part of the reason me and my ex got into a relationship because I knew a lot of his past and I was like it's okay you know I'm not here to judge you I'm gonna, you know I'm here with who you are now and then he just kind of grabbed that I don't know it's he saw that part of me that was naive and he would tell me through our entire relationship how naive I was how naive I was and I was like I'm not naive I'm just you know Ooh. I just Love people. <laughs> Ooh, so he's, but now I'm like, yo, I'm. Uh, so he he he's uh. A he he's he's like saying stuff like that as like a power play. He's like saying these things is a weird. Oh, this. So he was a real monster. Yeah, I yeah, I didn't use that word lightly. Yeah, a monster. Yeah, yeah. A monster. It's it's funny. Both my wife and my shrink have had to really say to me. You have to be you have to pr- be self protective too at points. I think in a mm-hmm. lot of in a lot of my work, I think my HBO special as well was like very blunt and and very open about a pretty dark topic, and you put it out there. And as an artist, you know you try to like give that 
out to the world. And then sometimes it does bite me where I feel like, wow, I don't have much of a safety net for myself. Right, right. Well, your story becomes other people's then and and they can sort of do with it what they please. Speaking of your uh, your HBO special career suicide, you you deal with some pretty dark topics and you go into really honest detail about your own mental health challenges over the years. Um, and in the show, you explain how the first therapist you went to really didn't listen at all, was asking totally vague questions or was ignoring your answers to previous questions and asking you completely unrelated questions. And I wonder if that first experience of, of talking to ostensibly a stranger, but somebody who was being paid to, you know, was a professional, um, if it colored how you approach listening to people people now? I think it did. I think that's a really astute question. I think I think that did. I think if I'm being honest, I think one of, one of the feelings I felt throughout most of my youth was that adults didn't want to hear what I had to say. Mm-hmm. I think that that experience with that shrink was a very, uh, you know, very prominent and dangerous example of that. But I remember my own experience when I was at my most stressed out, when I was at a point where my life was probably most in, you know, in flux and in danger in a lot of ways, feeling like, man, the adults in my life don't want to hear it. A mm-hmm. lot of the people don't want to hear it. And uh, I, I do think there's definitely some anger in my gut towards uh, maybe trying to do my part to correct that and and give people somebody. And uh, it's funny with my TV show, I'll never forget one of the big impetuses behind me starting this podcast. And this is not a story I think I've told publicly um, in this context, but there was a kid who used to call my TV show. When we were on public access, there was a kid Mm -hmm. he used to call, and he was almost always the first caller. Uh, He was Mm -hmm. a kid from Massachusetts, and he was 14 years old. And he used to call up and just kind of mess with me, and I would play into the bit and be like, oh, the crowd likes you more than me, and it's my show, (laughs) and I'd kind of be the straight man to this kid, and he was this 14-year-old kid just being a punk on the phone. And then some fans of, of the TV show actually interviewed him. They were putting out like a fan podcast and, and mm-hmm. they said to him, you know, he had stopped calling after a while, and, and but for a year or two, he was always on. And, and they said to him, you know, like, you always called and it's funny, like, you messed with Chris a lot too, but then it kind of took this turn where you were more chill and you just always kept calling. Like, what 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 was that experience like for you? And he said to me, he goes, you know, I never talked about this on the show when I was younger a few years ago, but he's like, when I started calling the show, my parents were going through a really messy divorce. Mm. And uh, I found the show and I realized I could prank call it and try to be funny. But then after after a few calls, I realized, oh, this weird guy in New York in this public access station is the only adult that actually listens to what I have to say. Huh. Like, if I say something funny, he actually laughs and gives me props. Yeah. and. If I say something mean, he gets hurt. Or if he's frustrated, he's honest with me about it. And I realized this is the only adult I had back then actually listening. And that, as you can imagine, that had like a pretty profound impact on me, especially as someone who remembers feeling a little ignored or brushed, brushed aside as a young person. Um, I wonder, are you familiar with the the um, the Jungian term or the Jungian idea of a wounded healer? A wounded healer. You'll have to. I've read a few of the Jungian things, but you'll have to remind me of a wounded healer. So, so it's uh, so Carl Jung said it. Uh, it is his own hurt that gives a measure to his power to heal. And I feel like 
you and obviously you say countless times in your show you're not a therapist you are a guy who is listening to other people but that you know you are aware of your own hurt and your own wounds and that you are able to be this empathetic vessel for people I mean do you think that you could be categorized as that I think it sounds on target if I'm being <laughs> honest it sounds pretty pretty on target and I, I think, I think one thing that maybe it's it's funny. It's it's. I think people who follow my work, one thing I think they understand about me is, I'm I'm. You can see it professionally. I'm doing better than I was a few years ago. But mm-hmm. they just know in their gut, I'm never gonna. I'm never gonna not feel broken in some way. Sure. I'm never not going to feel like a messed up, confused kid from New Jersey who can't get anybody to listen to him. So mm-hmm. I think I think they see that I have drawn a line in the sand. And no matter how many times you see me show up in TV or how many, you know, see things going well, I think they always know I'm in the trenches with them. And I think yeah. that goes a long way. Chris Gethard is the host of Beautiful Anonymous from Earwolf. To find out more about the show or any of his many projects, check out biglisten.org. Well, we've almost reached the end of this week's episode. Ah, what? How is that possible? But before we let you go, it's time for C-H-A-R-T-O-G-R-A-P-H-Y. Chartography is our 60-second mapping of the Apple podcast charts. But we're not looking at number one or even number 100. We're looking at number 289. And if your podcast has reached number 289, congrats, you've made it. Now you can retire. Okay, so this week's 289. Where is my air horn? Here it is. So Joe Budden is a hip-hop artist um, with a few albums under his belt. And he also has a very long podcast. We are here. How is everyone doing? Joe Budden and his uh, crew of pals spend a lot of time dissecting whether or not Tyrese Gibson from the Fast and Furious franchise Hashtag Fast Family, right? is going to actually get into a real fist fight with The Rock. I take The Rock. I mean, uh, not The Rock. Who do I take? Tyrese. There was a lot to digest there, a lot to churn over. Yes. Then it kind of uh, went off the rails a little bit. For real? <laughs> no way. Because they started talking about um, the hip-hop artist Nelly. Oh! who was accused of sexual assault recently. Are we going to uncover the Nelly rape scandal? All of the folks on this podcast unanimously agreed that Nelly would never rape somebody because Nelly doesn't need to rape someone. Well, I know Nelly. I don't believe him to have done these things. To which I screamed, it isn't sex and people don't rape because they need to. That made me really uncomfortable. It's about power and aggression, whatever. Anyway, it didn't matter because nobody was listening. See why we need women on this podcast? (laughs) And they talked about Harvey Weinstein. I almost turned it off, but I wanted to hear from Bridget Kelly. So you want to know why I did Love and Hip Hop? I would say that I don't even know where this is going. We off on a tangent. And if you like these folks. Y'all laughing, right? Then you should listen to them. And if you don't want to hear armchair analysis of sexual assault, maybe don't listen. I don't know. That's just me. Want to listen to the big listen on the go? Well, you can. Just go to Apple Podcasts or NPR One or any fine purveyor of podcasts and hit subscribe. Then we'll appear in your feed every week like magic, and you don't even have to lift a finger. So great news if you're lazy. 
Well, you do have to hit play, so that is lifting a finger. Also, check us out on Facebook and Twitter. We're at Here Big Listen. That's H-E-A-R, Big Listen. I promise you, we're more fun than a presidential trip to Asia. And should you want to send us a love note or three, our email address is biglisten at wamu.org. The show today was produced by Daisy Rosario, Ponce Rutch, and Abby Holtzman. Jake Cherry mixed the show. I, Lauren Ober, was hiding from Robert Mueller. Don't tell him where I am. David Schulman composed the theme music. Other music in the show came from Army Navy, the band, not the store. Special thanks this week to John Earl for recording help and to Ben Balter for MacGyvering the 289. The Big Listen is the brainchild of boss lady Andy McDaniel and her boss man, J.J. Yore, and is produced by WAMU and American University and distributed by NPR in Washington, D.C., capital of America. And now a few final thoughts from Ulich Ulgen, host of the podcast Murmur. He had been running the podcast out of his East Village apartment until his landlord pulled the plug. It was a bitter pill for Olgan to swallow because making the podcast changed his life. I used to be such an awkward person. I mean, just socially speaking, I was so shy. And I really needed to do murmur in order to push myself out of my comfort zone so that I could confront my social shortcomings and improve them. And it was thankfully for the medium of podcasting that helped me to become the person that I am today. Right now, Ulgen is figuring out where Murmur's permanent home will be. He says he has a couple of options he's working on, but he still believes in his project's mission. I want Murmur to be able to serve as the same helping tool for my guests that are coming here that are having trouble communicating or making friends. Because when you think about it, that's the most important thing in life, friendship. There's nothing more powerful than that. And I can't argue with that. Thanks for hanging out, friends. Till next time, keep listening, America. This is NPR.